So, hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. And we've entitled today's one, Bad News is Boom News, colon, uh, the rise and rise of equities. So, we're going to be looking at uh, the uh, elevated prices of equities around the world and uh, throwing together some thoughts on uh, how we got there and what to do next. I'm joined, as always, by our uh, Chief Strategist, David Llewellyn-Smith. G'day, David. G'day, Tim. And our Head of Investments, Damien Classen. Hello, Damien. Hi, Tim. Hello to you. Okay, so let's roll into the agenda. So, uh, valuations. So, we'll still kick off with some valuations. We'll then look at growth. Uh, we'll then have a look at some macro drivers we're keeping an eye on. And then, of course, roll into the risks uh, and uh, some of the areas that we're looking at that may uh, exacerbate or, al- or alleviate uh, the position that we find ourselves in now vis-a-vis uh, stock valuations. Uh, so, let's jump into uh, our first one for the day, which is high valuations and we've got a chart here and for those that are listening in on the podcast as always we will be providing um, the chart pack uh, in a link in the show notes Uh, but who'd like to kick us off with high valuations damien yeah, I've just got. A, I've only got a couple of charts in here, um, mainly because you know when, when, it, when it comes to looking at valuations, there's no one real measure that sort of encompasses everything. So what we like to do is look at a whole different range of measures. Uh, so and rather than making this sort of a, a forty-page uh, slide deck, I thought I'd just run through the, the real quick ones first. So the, the key one um, is just looking at twelve-month forward. Uh, price to earnings, which shows are pretty similar to, to most other metrics. Um, you get a, a few uh, differences between regions and 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 um, and sectors, depending upon what you're looking at. But by and large, we're looking at valuations on a global basis that that are expensive, but not um, not excessively so. So they're uh, they're they're below what we've seen um, you know, post the uh, sort of in 2014 and, and 2017. We saw much higher valuations. So we're sort of sitting around about that 16 times earnings on the uh, on on the world. Uh, Australia though is is uh, certainly on the more expensive side. So mm. it's sitting much closer to it's sort of at 17 times earnings, which is which is pretty close to its peaks uh, over the last few years. So Australia is certainly sitting a fair bit higher than than what we're seeing uh, in terms of the rest of the world. A lot of that rest of the world though is comes down to uh, the US versus uh, versus everywhere else. And so if you jump to the next slide, I've just got a, a slide just breaking up the, the relative valuation. So uh, what, what's the premium or discount of each different market uh, relative to the world index? And so on this basis, you can see that the US just keeps being at that sort of 10%, 10 to 15% uh, more expensive than the, than, the, than the world. And Europe just keeps drifting away. Um, so from, from almost parity to the, to the world in sort of the 2014s and 15s and, and then sliding down as, 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 uh, as things continue to stagnate in, in Europe. And so I guess it's a question of trying to work out where you're actually getting the growth from. Mm. And so, so this chart is actually a relatively um, uh, good example of uh, – it fits relatively well with where you're seeing the earnings growth. So you've seen the earnings growth coming from from the US, and so it sits on a on a much higher uh, multiple than the, than the rest of the world. Uh, you've seen not a lot of earnings growth at all in in Europe, and so that's been um, you know, that's reflected in the price and the, mm. and the premium that you're paying. Australia is a little bit of an anomaly. We're not seeing much earnings growth um, at at all in Australia, although you do you do get some. Um, uh, we've seen the the big iron ore stocks have made a a, a bit of a difference uh, in terms of the 
the iron ore price. So so a little bit from there, but but by and large, Australian earnings have actually been uh, very weak. Yep. And especially when you dig into the, the individual sectors, um, so so its pricing is is more of an anomaly. So I guess we're we're running at growth much closer to Europe's, um, but we're sitting on a, a price to earnings multiple much closer to the US. And, and do you think um, so? We can see here that was there was sort of a, a, an inflection point, uh, what sort of mid uh, July of, of 2017, which sort of roughly coincides with the turning point of the Aussie housing market. Talking about Australia here, um, do you think there, that there may have been a, a pivot into equities? Um, to sort of help provide a little bit of a boost into into the share market, so there's liquidity out there. It's not going into being funneled into swapping houses with each other. Is it? Is it then people are going, okay, I've got to put it somewhere. Am I sticking it in debt? Yeah, I mean, you, you, get a, equity you get a bit of argument about where the marginal buyer is for the for the Aussie market. Um, I, from what I've seen, I, I don't think the Australian the individual Australian investor makes as much of a difference as as global investors. Right. Um, okay. Drifting in and out. So I think when uh, Australia, the Australian market is sort of two percent of the the global uh, market index, and mm-hmm. so uh, a, a large, you know, or a international fund managers deciding, okay, I'm going to allocate an extra 0.1 or 0.2 percent to my Australian holding, um, is in my mind much uh, such a such a, a greater impact on on the effect of the valuation for the Australian stocks than whether um, the, the, than anything that happens sort of domestically within Australia. Right. Okay. And yeah. so, uh, and Australia is very much looked upon as a bit of a um, uh, a turbocharged way to, to play world growth mm-hmm. um, because when world growth's going well, Australia's got lots of resources and and that tends to go well, mm-hmm. uh, and then vice versa. And and you also see the Aussie dollar rise. Um, uh, so you sort of get a, a double. You sort of get a double whammy if you if you invest in Australia, you get the the world growth exposure and you get a, a currency world growth exposure as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah, so so that's the way I, I tend to to think that um, that's that's a bigger effect on valuations in Australia than, than than individuals. Having said that, you know once you dig into actual individual shares within Australia, you did you um, you find that the Australian market is actually even more expensive than it looks on on this measure because Australia's got so much resources and, and banks yep. and resources and banks traditionally trade at very low multiples. So um, if you line up sector by sector and you start looking and saying, well, uh, let me see Australian banks versus global banks. Let me see uh, Australian resources versus uh, global resources. And, and they're not that much. Uh, Australian banks look expensive and Australian resources um, are, are sort of not, you know, they're, they're a large part of the, 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 the world. So they're not, they're, they're sort of similar priced. Then you start going through the other sectors, and you just sector by sector, Australian market is more expensive than okay. global markets, and um, in most cases, more expensive than the U.S. markets as well. So, uh, the the headline figures hide how expensive the Australian market is. Yep. Okay. Mm. Uh, just one more question, actually, and for those listening in, feel free to drop some questions in uh, on the uh, the live chat there. Um, it was a, just a quick one that popped in my mind. So we've got a falling currency. So part of what you were saying there, that you know, impetus to jump into Australia from overseas and overseas being a key driver, as you mentioned before. Mm. Um, so if you is, it, is the high dividends and the payout ratios perhaps then enticing to a, a foreign investor, perhaps even if they could hedge out some of the currency risk, or is that sort of is that would that be an impetus? Do you think for a foreign uh, you know, investment uh, for, house to for, jump in for some yes uh, I mean the, the argument comes back and, and I've run a few things on this in, in the past just looking at uh, the payout ratios you see from Australian companies mm. uh, versus international so if you look at Australian companies just pay out a large a much larger proportion of their earnings and most of that is due to franking credits mm. so they're just trying to get 
Australian companies are generally trying to get their franking credits off their books and out to shareholders because it's of no use to the company and it is useful to the shareholders. Sure. Uh, in contrast, international companies don't have that, so they, they often have much lower payout ratios, but they um, they then pay out much higher levels of... They have then have much level higher levels of buybacks. Yep. So the net effect is you're getting the same result. You're either getting a... You know, it's basically people looking for tax efficiencies. In Australia, it's like, well, it's tax efficient to get rid of these franking credits for my shareholders. Um, in in global things, it's tax efficient to do buybacks to get the share price up, mm. um, and not and not have to people not have to worry about the income side. They can they can just get it all on the capital side, and so um, and and so international share, shareholders as well investing in Australian companies generally don't get the franking credits, mm. and so for them the franking credits is 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 not, lost is lost exactly, <laughs> yeah. and so um, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is the answers. Uh, Superficially, you might find some people who do it superficially. I think, as uh, uh, from an institutional perspective, though, I don't think that they're, uh, they're too concerned whether they get the return from income or from capital returns. Mm. And so, if they're going to get you know higher in, they'd probably prefer to get capital returns. Um, so, so it's almost a negative for the Australian. Yeah. Okay. Stocks. All right. Yeah. No, great answer. Anything to to throw in on this one, Dave? Okay. Um, <laughs> just one last final one. Um, just for appearing into to Europe. So we've had. Um, you know, quantitative easing or, you know, the general growth of the balance sheet, government balance sheets and um, in the US mm. could help sort of support some of the rise we've seen there. Why are we not seeing it in Europe where the ECB's uh, been going nuts with the, the printing machine well, as well? Certainly it's been, I mean, the, the P's have been rising. Uh, the issue is it's, this is a relative chart. So um, so everything's going up, just the European P's. Not aren't going, going up as fast as what the US and the Australian ones have been doing. Second derivative. Okay. So yeah. So, so this is you've more also, of a. You've also had quantitative tightening going on in both the US and Europe recently. Yep. Over the last twelve months. Yeah. So I mean, those liquidity flows are considered to have some impact on the valuations story. Okay. But we'll move a little bit more into the um, the effects on their valuation and the sort of underlying drivers. Once we sort of so, so just sort of putting the the picture out there that most markets are expensive, um, and uh, the US and Australia in particular are more expensive than than some of the other markets. Uh, the other one is the earnings growth. So earnings growth is is always an interesting one about how you how you look at this. We've got a, a chart up just sort of showing the progression of growth over over time. And what you tend to find, and these are analyst forecasts, what you tend to find is analysts make forecasts about what a company is going to earn, and then over time, those those forecasts generally tend to fall. So, so they come out with a, an optimistic view of how things are going to look in next year and the year after, and then as time goes on, those get sort of ratcheted down, and, and they end up being a, you know, whatever the final numbers actually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... What this chart at the moment is showing is that 2018 was the opposite, where everyone had these views, this view that... Um, the earnings would be about 10%, and that tends to be what, what later year earnings, everyone sort of guesses about 10%. Right. right? And then uh, as time went on, though, that, that all of a sudden rocketed and sort of ended up closer to 25%. And that's because of the tax cuts we saw in the US. So, right, yep. So a little bit of that was, um, was, was actual growth. Most of it was um, tax cuts. And it, it, arguably, the growth you saw was probably might have been second derivative from tax cuts as mm. well. Okay. So then we look at the 2019 numbers, 
Again, started at that sort of roughly 10%, and then that's been, we've seen some pretty sharp downgrades. Uh, we're getting, so we're about halfway through the year now. Uh, US is in its reporting season at the moment, and it's it's getting pretty close to zero in terms of the expectations for the, the full year of 2019. And these, are, these are US companies. Mm. And, and generally speaking, you can, you, whatever's happening in the US, it's worse in Europe and, and Australia. Okay. Uh, 2020, you haven't seen much change yet. They're basically forecasting about a, about a 10% return. Having said that, though, um, if you flick to the next chart, the issue for earnings is is not so much um, well. It's important as to whether analysts are upgrading or downgrading, but the bigger issue is um, the the actual absolute number is that changing? And and what happens is every um, so so most people either uh, when they're looking at analyst forecasts will, will generally try and use a, a constant horizon. So you can look at 2019 or you can look at 2020 or 2021, or you can just say, well, let me just use a, a 12-month forward horizon. And I'm just going to keep rolling that forward. So every month, I just take one one few, one less month of 2019 and, and add one more month of 2020. Okay, sure. Yep. And this is this is the one that really drives um, valuations more so than um, the, the, the prior chart, because this one shows that earnings have actually been rising. We saw, we saw earnings fall at the end of um, 2018 and so some, some quite... You know, negative. Um, so the actual, you know, the actual twelve-month forward number was falling, and whereas now, even though the both the two thousand and nineteen and the two thousand and twenty forecasts are falling, what's happening is because you're getting a little bit more of two thousand and twenty and a little bit less of two thousand mm. and nineteen, and two thousand and twenty is higher than two thousand and nineteen, um, that number is still rising. So that it's when when you get more concerned is when the rate of fall. In those numbers turns into a turns it negative as it, as it did sort of the end of 2018. Sure. Okay. So right. so at the moment, um, I'd, I'd call it holding, I suppose. Not really not really rising, and I do think the 2020 numbers, um, you know, haven't really been looked at properly by analysts. You you, you saw on the prior chart there was just a general trend of they sort of go hold around that 10 percent, and then all of a sudden. Uh, they they rock it downwards once uh, that number becomes the next focus. So what tends to happen is you, you to that right now everyone's focused on what's happening for 2019, mm-hmm. and then 2019 becomes an actual, and everyone goes, oh, let me go and have a look at 2020 now. Yeah, okay. Go, oh, gee, those numbers look a bit high. You know, we need to pull those back, and then right. that's where you get the the fall in 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 2020 numbers. So um, yeah, so from an earnings perspective. Uh, it's certainly not as negative as it was six months ago. So mm-hmm. there's, there's some support in terms of the earnings, um, but it's um, you know the real question will be as people start to focus on on those later years and, and we get through this reporting season and see where where um, where these numbers are going. But um, you know our, our expectation is sort of holding is is, is what you you'd ex- your best bet. Yep. Uh, and it's falling in some markets like Australia or or, um, or Europe. Mm, okay. Sure thing. All right. So um, we'll roll across into equity risk premium. We might just need to start with a little bit of an explain 101 on uh, on that term. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think the, you, you could spend a long time explaining this one. Uh, I think that the net effect is uh, when someone wants to value a share, you're effectively valuing it as a stream of cash flows of some sort. So yep. um, whether you want to do the dividends or whether you, you, you go into some of the underlying cash flows to, to work out what the right number is. And then you're uh, discounting that back. So you're saying, okay, well, if I can get $4 a year from, from this stock, then uh, I think that means that I can add that up and I can say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn that into a, a $20 share price um, or, a, or, or a $40 share price or whatever it is. And, and what you decide, how that, that multiple expands or, um, is based on what we call the, the risk premium. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and that's largely driven by by bonds. There's there's a there's an indi- there's an individual component for each stock, but then there's an overall component which is the the bond or or what um, the the bond markets, and then there's an an additional part which is how much I'm paying for risk. Mm. So um, I can I can buy a bond and get a, a much lower return. Uh, there's this extra slice I'm going to say, well, if I'm going to, not going to buy bonds, I'm going to buy stocks. Yep. Um, how much am I paying for that that extra risk? And then the final part is um, yeah, the individual stock part. And this this one's showing the overall world equity risk premium and how um, how that's changed. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. So so basically, the key to understanding it is the lower bond yields go, the lower the risk free rate is, then the higher the risk premium. Uh, if prices don't change. Yeah. And so basically it's a kind of an inverse correlation to inflation. Okay. Um, and this this is the kind of the key macro driver to the high valuations that we're seeing at the moment, as well as uh, the, the last sort of uh, three months of rally that we've seen in the US globally and especially in Australia, as bond yields have really been taking a, a flogging. And that's sort of the, the, the key, actually, to the title of the presentation, which is, you know, the more bad news you get, uh, the more the market wor- worries about growth prospects mm. to up to a point, you know, the point at which earnings are genuinely going to fall, um, then the higher the stocks can go because bonds are bid as inflation falls away. Mm. Um, so, and, and, and actually put that another way, I mean, I think... Rather than focusing too much on this graph, if you sort of talk about more about the the um, w- when somebody buys uh, a stock, you're basically saying, well, I can either I can go to a government and and get a ten year government bond uh, for for five percent, for example. Yep. Uh, so obviously risk free rate. Obviously, no government at the moment. No, <laughs> but but you know, no AAA government. But anyway. twenty twenty years ago, you could you could find plenty of them. Uh, and so so then when you say, okay, well that's my. So if I'm going to buy stocks, I'm going to I'm going to have to get better than five percent return. I'm going to need it, and I'll put a risk premium on that and, and work out what I'm going to get. Yep. Um, and so let's say you you only need you know three or four percent more, and then you're happy to invest in stocks. Well, if that bond yield goes from five percent to negative one, mm-hmm. which is where it's sort of sitting for a number of countries and pretty close to zero for, for a lot for most uh, for, for most others yep. um, then all of a sudden what you need to earn on stocks isn't you don't need to earn as uh, you know nine percent return on stocks anymore you only need to earn a five percent return on stocks yep. to, to make it worthwhile and okay. so and so that justifies why you can keep bidding these up and so that's that's one way of looking at it whether it's the right way or not um, yeah that's there's sort of you know, lots of argument over over that but we might we'll probably jump into the risks actually just to- yep. yeah let's have a look at the risks so Dave kick us off with the trade war uh, sure so uh, I mean obviously there's been some reasonable news on the trade war in the last few weeks since the G20 um, with you know re-engagement of negotiations uh, that said the Australian dollar is a pretty good proxy for the way the trade war has run mm-hmm. uh, and the rebound there has been pretty muted and even the good news flow that we've seen in the last week or two has done very little for the Australian dollar so markets become quite skeptical about you know where the, the trade war uh, rapprochement is is going uh, so you know, we kind of think that they might get to a point with the trade war where where there's some sort of announcement that can be made for for both dictators. Uh, that said, it'll be it could only possibly be. I suspect one one side's a want to be dictator. Yeah, I'd say it's probably not <laughs> well, quite there yet. Yeah, quotation marks there. <laughs> but, um, 
so we there'd be more we think it'd largely be a PR exercise anyway and so the trade war is likely you know to continue for the many reasons that we've discussed mm-hmm. um, previously and so therefore it's an ongoing headwind for, especially for Chinese growth mm. yes so actually and just to put that into context some of those what some of those risks for any for, for newer listeners uh, so I guess the, the way we look at the the trade war is that there have been some structural changes now that if uh, in terms of the, the way Chinese companies are addressed in terms of the supply chain uh, so that US companies or um, are basically being strongly encouraged to move their supply chains away from China. So mm-hmm. three or four years ago, it would be perfectly reasonable for a, for a US company to, to turn around and think, well, I'm, I'm spending too much money on all my systems. I'm going to move everything into China and then you know just, just import all the products. Whereas uh, that's gone th- under a, a quite a significant structural, ch- uh, structural change in terms of the risks. And some of these bans on different companies and on and off and all that type of stuff has, regardless of whether the bans are, are still in place, they've had the effect of scaring the, the, the US corporate boardroom into uh, moving their, their supply chain and diversifying their supply chain away from, away from China. So that's sort of one, one big negative. The second part is the technolo- technologically, uh, there's been lots of leaks about spy chips and, and hacking and, and all these other things in terms of China. Um, and so, uh, the, so the, the issue there is, uh, there's been a trust, a certain amount of trust that was, that was, I guess, implicit, um, there, you know, four or five years ago where people would again outsource things to China without even thinking too much about the, the process. Whereas now there's a big focus on, well, if this is sensitive information, you're worried about it and you think it might, you know, that, that, that uh, industrial espionage might happen, then don't send it to China. Mm. Do it, do it elsewhere. And so we think that's a, a there's been a, a relatively uh, marked structural change that regardless of whether there's an agreement to okay let's go back to the way things were before um, you, you can't put that journey back in the bottle it's you know that's yeah. that's gone now and we're seeing that trickle down through uh, even basic manufacturing last night we we saw well previously we've seen the, the bike manufacturer giant pull out a lot of stuff out of China uh, and last night we saw Hasbro which is you know, just basic toy making. Mm. You know, this is really kind of low rent stuff. They get about a quarter of my income at the moment with two young kids. Uh, yes, that's right. Well, <laughs> they're shifting to Vietnam and India. Yeah, a right. lot of their production. Um, and uh, you know, there's one other dimension to that I think, which is that um, you know China's response to being called out a lot of, on a lot of this stuff has actually been a bit unhinged, mm. uh, and they've responded very aggressively and angrily. To the point where you know they're arresting Westerners and what have you, and embarking on you know kind of uh, um, hostage diplomacy and you know pretty pretty wacky stuff. And you've got obviously Hong Kong intensifying that. And so there's actually a personal dimension here for Western um, you know executives. Hmm. Uh, do do I really want to have to fly <laughs> to China and, and investigate the supply chain you hmm. know on a frequent basis when? You know, you have so much volatility in the politics. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so especially, I mean, take take Canadian. There's been a number of Canadians arrested, and so if you're a Canadian executive and, and you know your government's arrested, yeah, you know, a, a, a senior Huawei, um, you know, exec, and and that's still uncertain as to what's going to happen there. Do you really want to fly to China and, and worry that yeah. you know something your your government decides to do something, and next thing you know, you're you're, you're yeah. eating Chinese prison dumplings. Yeah. yeah. So that's why we see this as structural. You know, um, so much harm has been done to sort of the peaceful rise of China rhetoric mm. uh, that 
it's kind of an unstoppable trend now for for a lot of this offshoring to to shift away from China. Mm. Um, so I mean that's a risk, uh, you know, in terms of global growth. We've already seen it weigh very heavily on uh, you know the industrial output of China, which is filtered directly through to Europe, mm. uh, and Europe's got you know basically is struggling to keep its head out of recession yep at the moment its industrial economy is definitely in recession mm-hmm. job losses are starting to flow out of that and will we see services follow probably um, so that brings us to risk number two which is you know uh, we have this sort of failing europe coming out of china uh, and a hard brexit approaching we don't know if, if it's actually going to go um, but you know it is embedded in the current um, negotiations that if they can't uh, you know, if the new Prime Minister of the UK, Bojo, can't renegotiate something by October 31, Britain automatically rolls out mm. of the EU. And, uh, you know, can Parliament intervene? Maybe. Um, but at the moment, you know, there is a real prospect of a hard Brexit. Um, politically, it's probably in his best interests to try and do it, mm. simply because the Tory party's being eaten by Nigel Farage. Uh, and you know the election's still a few years away, but um, they really need to clean this up. They mm. can take a hard Brexit, take the economic pain, and try and rebound into the next election. Mm. I would say. Uh, so those two combine, then you know to to create the possibility. Well, the three, I guess you can look at China's growth there too out of the trade war, obviously as well. That's more of a structural story around its rising debt. The other feature. Of that, of course, is it's responded to the downshift in its industrial economy by boosting construction again, especially in empty and useless apartments, mm-hmm. uh, rather than infrastructure, which would be a little more useful. Um, so those three things can actually come together in a risk case um, that uh, you know can see global earnings actually take a serious hit um, sometime in the next kind of you know twelve months, um, and you know when you consider the age. Uh, and, and sort of graying of the business cycle. Mm. Um, it's the longest business cycle, more or less, in US history already. Mm. Um, that makes us quite cautious about the valuations and what the prospects of, um, you know, earnings taking a material hit enough for it to overwhelm any any kind of lower bond yields and equity risk premium uh, is material. And just just on that, so effectively, um, and this sort of goes back to that sort of commonly trotted out line, external shock. It's everything's great until there's an external shock. So this would sit in that in that wheelhouse. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And and so I guess I guess part of the coming back to putting that into into context. So it's not bad to buy stuff when it's expensive mm. if you can see the growth coming through and that the growth pretty quickly makes it not expensive. And then that was um, you know the 2018 example of that was the you know the, the Trump tax cuts was that markets were relatively expensive at that point, but you could very easily see, okay, I can see where 20% EBS is coming from. It's coming from tax cuts. Mm. And so that justifies the higher multiples. And so you can easily then go, okay, well, I, you know, I'll go out and buy stuff that looks expensive, but um, the earnings growth carries me and now it's no longer expensive. Mm. I guess at the moment is we're going, we're looking at it saying, okay, we think there's going to be downgrades to earnings. We, we think earnings are roughly holding where they are. So it's pretty hard to see where... Um, where are you going to get an extra jump in earnings from? So if earnings just sort of hold steady where they are and maybe you get sort of 5% growth at best in terms of earnings, um, 
then you don't really want you don't you don't want to be paying top dollar for that type of market. Yep. Whereas if you're paying um, top dollar for a market where you can see the growth, then uh, or you know, and or it's a it's a you're in the cycle upswing and 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 all those types of factors, then there, there's a lot more scope to, to to pay up. When you're looking at markets that are very expensive, and then you're saying, okay, well now the the growth looks relatively all baked in already, and there's potential downsides to this growth if you get trade war worsens or if you get you know these other factors come mm. through. Then that's where you're, um, yeah. That's where you need to be concerned about markets sort of yeah. correcting. And, and that's why some argue that you know right now there's a disconnect between bond yields and, <laughs> and equity prices. Mm. Yep. You know it's not a good news infl- um, disinflation story. Mm. It's inflation falling away as these risks bite. Uh, that's why bonds are bid so strongly. Yep. Um, and so the rise of equity prices, you know, is high risk mm. in, in that context. So we added an, a fourth risk there, um, which I've become quite concerned about in recent times, which is oil. Um, oil's basically these days one of the key lines of contagion from global weakness back into the US mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, the shale um, oil story has become so central to US investment growth. Uh, and, you know, it's become a big oil exporter. And um, as we know, the production of shale oil takes a lot of high-level consistent investments. Mm-hmm. So it, it drives a lot of growth um, in corporate spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the, you know, when, when the oil, uh, oil market comes out of balance because growth is falling, um, it's the US that wears that pain most immediately because the oil price has to fall to knock shale oil out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, but can I just put a little bit more context around that as well? Sure. Is that US used to be um, the opposite. So it used to be when the oil price rose, that was like a... There's like an interest rate rise in the US. Um, everyone pays more at the pump, yep. and all of a sudden people spend a little bit less, and, and and you get things slow down. The oil price falls, and you get the opposite. All of a sudden, everyone's got twenty bucks more in their pocket yep. every week, and, the, and they go out and spend it. So what's happened though with the US, given that shale boom Dave was talking about, is that now you've turned it into a two-factor where, uh, yes, the oil price goes up, and everyone pays a little bit more at the pump. But all of a sudden, there's all these companies out there hiring more people, um, you know, pumping more oil and, and spending all this extra capex, and that sort of bounces around the, the economy in, in various places where, where the, that are all strong. Yep. And so you get a little bit of an offset, and then vice versa. When when prices fall, you get the you know, consumer benefit, but the um, the capex sort of fades away. Yep. Yep. And so that's where uh, yeah, so oil's no in the US. It's not not like it was. 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it's a very different uh, dynamic in terms of how the oil price actually affects the, the US mm. in terms of the growth. Absolutely right. Uh, and at the moment, we're in a building oil glut. Mm. Um, and obviously, surrounding that, we have those first three risks uh, with the possibility of you know demand growth falling even more. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, there's a distinct possibility. Basically, oil is very seasonal across the year. And as you come into the second half, especially towards the end of the year, the oil market loosens a lot. Mm, okay. And so there's a possibility of a pretty decent oil glut going into the end of the year, or like just intrinsically without these, these extra shocks. Uh, and when we've seen that in the past couple of years, um, the oil price has crashed. Mm. Uh, and what, what that does is uh, immediately causes... Um, investment spreads in the US junk bond market, which is where the shalers get a lot of their investment money. Mm. They all blow out. In fact, in, in other words, debt gets a lot more expensive for them, and that starts to really shake up US markets. 
including the equity market. Right. Yep. Um, and that, that tips us into into um, the number five risk there, which is US corporate debt, which is extremely high um, at the moment, in part because of you know all these, these earlier drivers for, for cheap debt, mm-hmm. low inflation, low growth, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can have um, spreads blow out for corporate debt if you get those four, the first four or some combination of those four transpire very quickly. Uh, but it's also it's also a risk in its own right in that um, corporate corporate debt is, is is extended, and most of it's because the the interest rates are so low. So in terms of interest, in terms of payments that that are uh, at risk, you know, it's not as it's not as much. You don't have to worry as much about that. Um, and we're not expecting any rapid rises in uh, interest rates, interest and, rates yep. and partly because debt is so high that you know the the central banks use interest rates to, to manage inflation. And, and if they raise rates too quickly, then in Australia it's all you're going to smash all your households are hugely geared. In the US, they're still pretty geared, but um, their their corporates are really geared, so you'll start sending companies broke. So so we don't expect the rates to go up that quickly in terms of in terms of that side. Yep. But there's always a risk of an accident, um, and the, the the problem with the corporate debt is you could have a high profile blow up. Yep. Um, you know, GE is a huge name, and they're you know they're flirting with with going uh, with lots of debt out there, and they're flirting with um, becoming sub investment grade and all these issues. You know, I'm not saying they're they're the one that's going to be the, the the domino, but they, you know there might be a just or, a large company, just a large company Brothers somewhere. Sort of that, yep. Well, yeah, that's right, or maybe not Lehman. Yeah. <laughs> That's Lehman Brothers is, is an extreme experience, but an Enron type case or, or something like that, where where a large company and, and whether it's fraud or whether it's mismanagement or or whatever it is, it all of a sudden blows up this huge issue in the debt market. Yep. And you generally tend to find when that happens, everyone all of a sudden goes, oh, oh, that's right, companies can go broke. Yeah. Um, and there's actually some um, there's some sort of very very low rated company debt that in the Europe that's actually trading at, at zero or negative yields. Wow. Yep. And so um, you get a decent you, know, you get a decent sized company that's well advertised around the world and all of a sudden the premium people are going to demand will jump by at least a couple of percent and that's going to put the brakes on 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 these and could start causing other issues in that you know existing ones are like yes i've refinanced all this stuff at a three percent interest rate Mm. and it's you know it's a massive amount of debt but i'm only paying three percent so i'm fine and then all of a sudden your debt starts rolling off and um the next jump is a five percent, yep. and you've you know you're doubling your almost doubling your your interest payments. Your cost. Yep. Um, I can't handle that. Oh no, I've gone broke. Yeah. And the next person, you know, and then that, contagion. Contagion effect. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I guess the corporate debt, given it's so high, is not intrinsically a problem um, until it is, mm, okay. <laughs> and so it's almost a yeah. It's a it's one of those ones you, you never know when one of those can hit and maybe maybe you'll sail through and none of those will ever hit but no, there won't be any so, such high profile ones that you'll get concerned but it's certainly a, a risk to the the whole scenario as well and and saying if i'm if i'm going to invest in a market that is very expensive with low growth then i'd prefer not to be investing in that market when corporates are already geared to their eyeballs mm, okay and so just one more one more uh negative factor for and uh, the final one here we've got, um, not so much a risk, looking forward to it, helicopter uh, well, money. <laughs> it's potentially a risk for, for high-value equities in the long run. Okay. Um, Please just explain. Put, just put this one in, you know, for, for more of a structural risk in the long term. Uh, simply because, you you know, if... if Don't you want to explain it, helicopter money? Yeah, maybe just give, yeah, give yeah, some yeah, examples of helicopter money. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it's just printing money um, by the central bank, um, basically to pay for... You know, some kind of public 
uh, either investment or consumption, mm-hmm. or for that matter, um, giving it to the public, mm. um, either you know a universal basic income or, or something of that nature, yep. or a cash giveaway, whatever it is. It, but it's basically creating money out of nothing, yeah, uh, and and, 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 and giving it to someone to spend. Yeah, and why we've got it on the list is because uh, why why we look at helicopter money as being a bit of a game changer is because we've just had we had this major financial crisis and we've had. 10 years of uh, everyone trying to fix things by uh, lowering interest rates and, and quantitative easing. Debasing the currency. Basically done exactly what Japan did for 20-something years. Were you 25 yet? I don't know. It's, it's getting close. It's getting close, yeah. Um, and and getting, no, getting the same result in every, you know, pretty much in every country that mm. you get stuck in this debt trap you can't get out of. And, and, and the net effect is you need, wage, you need wages inflation and yep. you need uh, wages growth and wages inflation to to get things going and without some sort of helicopter money it's hard to see what else is going to be so so maybe there's something else that will cause this but but at the moment we're looking at it going you know every central bank is repeating exactly what they did the last time mm. and the effects are getting less and less every time and so we're just stuck in this never-ending low growth environment where you just get building up debt and and lowering interest rates to build up more debt to to try and get out of your debt trap and, and you're stuck in the same spot and so what what this is is this is saying well could there be a structural change mm. and a structural change could be helicopter money becoming you know part of the uh, part of the central bank toolkit it's still some time away there's a bit of discussion in the US about it from the uh, from the Democrats mm. uh, but you know, pretty much there's not much I don't know, the rest of the world maybe there, maybe no. there's been yeah I. I can't think of too much, too many examples. No, 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 I mean, so there's lots, there's lots of people from um, non-mainstream talking about it, mm. and lots of academics who talk about it. But in terms of mainstream, you know, taken by political parties as taken by major political parties who who have a chance of being in power. Um, yeah, there's really little little at the moment. But it, I mean, that's a Ben Bernanke. You know, he mm. more or less invented the term helicopter money. I think. Yes. Um, yes. So so I mean, there are there are. Um, Agents of influence, if you like, mm. who are who are supportive of it. Yep. Um, but no, it's, it's still a long way from from mainstream policy. Yeah. Okay. So we have we have this potential uh, st- structural change, I guess you'd call it, in terms of the way um, the world, you know, in terms of the way the monetary system works, and that's where um, and that's why we're sort of thrown up on the risk of saying, well, what's the what's the risk if you do start getting this. If, if helicopter money comes, what's the risk to to, to earnings and, and growth? And that's why I throw it back to David in terms of that. Well, it's just the the inverse of what we've been discussing today, which is basically if you do manage to generate some inflation, uh, then your earnings, uh, sorry, your uh, equity risk premium will start to fall, mm-hmm. and so some of those uh, uh, equity valuation measures will get crimped uh, and start to weigh on on possible returns it's a new regime in which to consider your asset allocation basically yep your your other major risk is that uh corporate um margins are are really high at the moment and and a lot of the reason why corporate margins are high is because uh we haven't seen wage growth i was just going to say yeah so you you touched on the wage growth being sort of a you know one of the many myriad of solutions to to driving or pushing up demand um Mm. and obviously that's 
for mine, we've seen a little bit of that in Australia, and I'm, I'm sure it has negligible effect on um, equities. But um, in the you know the push to rise, say the minimum wage, and you know then you're looking at corporate tax cuts and then personal tax tax cuts as well. So is that is that the government in, in by way trying to help through some form of regulatory stimulus that isn't helicopter money? Is that sort of a, an earlier step before you start getting to just parachuting? buckets of dough around the joint and just you know yeah yeah potentially it is i mean the, the issue is i think for for australia it's probably more about saying let's take a temporary as we like to do let's take a temporary commodity boom and turn that into a permanent tax cut yep um i think there's and, and there are elements in terms of australia in terms of there's a natural um and a lot of other countries have this similar thing where you you have your your brackets your tax brackets and so you, you start taking more and more of everyone's wages as just through inflation. Yep. Everyone starts ending up in higher tax brackets. Bracket and, so, yep. and so every now and again, you get to go, hey, everyone, there's a tax cut. And yeah. so rather than sort of saying, let's, um, rather incorporating that into your, into your system, it's actually not a bad feature to have because it means you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm gradually going to rise taxes until I need them and then I'm going to send them back to people and, mm. and sort of give a bit of stimulus. Um, but in terms of, uh, you, you don't want to ruin your tax base. You don't want to say, okay, well, all of a sudden, everyone let's let's not pay any taxes, and and we'll all have this great you know. There's all this huge great spending spree, and then all of a sudden you turn around and go, well, actually that's right. We do need actually need to pay for hospitals and schools and and all that sort of stuff. Let's throw all these taxes on. Yep. And at that stage, you smash the you, you smash demand. Yep. And so and and if you if you if you bounce around with those types of things too much, raise tax, lower tax, raise tax, lower tax, then you tend to find consumers then start saying, well, even when you raise tax, even when you lower taxes, I'm not going to spend it because you're just going to raise it again. So yep. I'll, I'll just save that for a rainy day. Mm. Whereas if you can sort of, um, so so I guess in terms of that, um, we would look upon cutting taxes, cutting taxes to get there as not being as useful as um, just central banks saying, okay, well, here's this one-off batch of cash that we're either going to, you know, forgive a bunch of government debt or we're going to give a bunch of money to government to go out and spend on infrastructure projects that's, yep. yeah, that's going to be a, more of a one-off nature than a... a um, yeah, okay. All right, very good. Or well, lots of one-offs for 10 years. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess the key is you're, just, you're not pulling forward demand. Mm. Whereas if you're using debt, you almost inevitably are. Yeah, okay. you've got to pay the piper you before get, long. Yep, mm. yep. And yep. you're sort of and you're counting on inflation to hopefully make it cheaper at the other end when you need to pay it off. <laughs> well, well, in the end, the governments need they need they need to start generating inflation somehow mm. because what tends to happen if you if you don't generate inflation is that the rich people stay rich and the the poor people stay poor and and then the poor people get very upset about staying poor and not being able to become rich and and yep. next thing you have revolutions or you know some serious structural change you start voting in some weird. And wonderful people with strange haircuts in Anglo countries on, on both sides of the Atlantic. With coal, with coal mines. That's right. <laughs> so um, just because you want something to change, yeah, like that's you know, right. that not because people have thought this through and thought, yes, this person, yeah. you know, the person that promises all everything, they they tend to say, well, Better than I know, nothing. I know what's happening at the moment doesn't work, yep. so I'll vote for somebody who's promising change. And so yeah, so I think that's helicopter money has got a number of issues in terms of yeah, that wages growth part about saying, well, all of a sudden companies might find their, their while revenues might be growing, all of a sudden you, your earnings aren't growing or they, they're possibly even going backwards if you have to start giving it back to shareholder, giving back to um, uh, employees in, yep. in the higher form of higher wages, which is good for the economy, but, but not a, may not be as good for um, some stocks in 
Okay. I like it. All right, very good. Well, on that note, we'll uh, finish up and jump across into next week's uh, topic. So uh, we've invited along. We're going to be having, having a chat to a property expert based in Sydney. So for those that have been following us, Catherine Cashmore often comes in and gives us a bit of a snapshot on the Melbourne property market. And we have someone of similar elk in Susan Farquhar joining us uh, for a chat. And so we'll be putting that out uh, at same bat time, same bat channel, uh, 12.30 p.m. Uh, on the Nucleus Wealth Live webinar page. Really look forward to hearing uh, what's happening up in Sydney and uh, what the prospects are going forward. And on that note, well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe, give us your email address, and in return, we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts, and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today, as I have, and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.